Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Troublesome Terps, the podcast about things that keep interpreters up at night. My name is Alexander Drexel. I'm an EU staff interpreter speaking here in a private capacity. It's probably bears repeating since I missed a couple of episodes, unfortunately, but um, Sarah and Alex were holding down the fort quite well. Um, so uh, let's welcome, first of all, Sarah Hickey. Good evening. How are you? Hello. Yeah, uh, I'm good. Uh, glad to be back. And it was fun running the last uh, few uh, um, episodes just with the other Alex. Yeah, with your favorite co-host, right? With my favorite co-host, yeah. I, could <laughs> I only heard, say that yeah. Time. Yeah. Now both of you are my favorite uh, co-hosts. But <laughs> no, I also really miss Jonathan, but that's another story. Yeah. Anyway, glad to be here, uh, also in a private capacity. But otherwise, in my daytime, I spent uh, my time researching the language industry at NIMSI. And yeah, by night, I'm a podcaster here. So with my favorite colleague, the other Alex. <laughs> Yay, that, that would be me, right? So this is Alex Gansmeyer, always in a private capacity, because that's all I have to offer. But um, yeah, always that's a pleasure good. to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd like to think it's enough. Uh, but yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. And I think, Alex, today we have some very special co-hosts for today's show, don't we? Indeed, we do. Uh, we have two... Uh to guess that, um, well, we've, we've been planning this for a long time, shall we just say, because it all started with uh, with a tweet or a Twitter conversation, actually, as, as many things do uh, nowadays. So it's finally happening because the idea was to have a bit of a debate uh, about a hot potato, a hot ticket item, uh, namely artificial intelligence or whatever's being called that uh, these days. Um, so here they are, Professor Graham Turner and Henry Liu. Um, Henry, I know from Twitter, of course. Uh, we also <laughs> met in person uh, a few times. Um, last time we met was at uh, the ATA conference in 2016. That's been quite a while. Um, I think back then you were still president of um, FIT, so the International Association of um, Interpreters and Translators, or associations thereof. Um, and what are you doing these days, Henry? Just like most people, just trying to find new ideas. I mean, the the consulting part works pretty much the same, and doing a bit of writing. And now I'm podcasting. <laughs> That's true. We're very glad you are. Only being interviewed, not good enough to be actually podcasting my ideas yet. Well, that might come at a later point. Um, but I was going to say, you're also an interpreter and translator. So do you still get to do any translation or interpreting uh, at the moment? Yes, absolutely. Um, thankfully, in the Antipodes, um, we, we finally get free movement and conferences are happening. And certainly, I mean, the day-to-day -day community interpreting absolutely still happening and, and had to be happening. But yes, face-to-face uh, -face is alive in the Antipodes. The trans-hemispheric travel is, um, is still out of bounds so far. Yeah, unfortunately. So but conference so, appearances well, hasn't happened yet. At the beginning of the pandemic, I, I, I decided not to accept any virtual appearances. You know, being somebody who is advocating for visibility and, and, and the physical presence being very important for what we're doing. Um, and particularly in the speaking capacity, um, I decided not to do that. But yeah, uh, a few special requests I, I, I have done. Hopefully, we can go get back together and being actually physically face-to-face uh, uh, -face and actually having, having the vibe. And, and hopefully, one day, we can actually have this um, what we were talking about at the beginning, the, the Troublesome Turb Roundtable Live, um, where we have <laughs> yeah. uh, where, where we have real, real hot potatoes throwing out from the audience. 
actual we'll physical hot potatoes and, and rotten tomatoes, possibly. Exactly. Um, yes. Also joining us from an undisclosed location, as I just said, is Professor Graham Turner. Welcome, Graham. It's lovely to be able to speak to you again. We had the pleasure of uh, uh, speaking quite a bit a few years ago about a topic that is um, very near and dear to your heart and my heart as well, uh, about sign language and the BSL Act, um, which is not really the topic, although it might be tonight. I don't know. Um, but um, the whole sort of Twitter conversation goes back, I think, to a talk you gave at the SUTI conference in 2018. As far as you can still recall, what was the, the main slant of that, of that talk? What sparked the debate there? It wasn't a talk, actually. It was a, um, a, a panel. Uh, 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 an audience initiated discussion really about uh, a whole range of topics and there was a particular uh, focus at one stage on this question of um, the role of technologies and uh, artificial intelligence in particular uh, in the interpreting field and um, I took the view at that point and would still take the view uh, that um, uh, we are generally underestimating the impact that that is going to have in the relatively short term. Um, but I won't go any further into that just now because I think this discussion will evolve in the next wee while. Spoiler wee while. alert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Keeping your cards close to the chest. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm um, wondering, Sarah, how, how are you looking at AI these days, um, you know, during your work at, at NIMSI? I'm assuming that's a big topic. And of course, translation, um, as, as is often the case, is a bit ahead of interpreting in, in terms of technology adoption and machine translation and, you know, tools built into, into catamarans and so on. So what, what have you picked up so far on, on the whole topic of AI and I guess natural language processing and, and so on. Yeah, there's there's a lot happening in that field, and as you rightfully said, in translation, this is already further ahead because it's it's a bit easier uh, in some sense to deal with the written word, and ideally also if something is already um, written and not changing all the time, even though there's been progress made there too. Um, machine translation is pretty much a staple these days, right? That it's being used in all sorts of forms. Actually, I, I just had a, a live stream earlier uh, this week on Monday with one of my colleagues who talked about um, it was player-generated content in the gaming industry and specific machine translation engines um, that were developed for that, which is really tricky because there's a lot of jargon and slang and basically gamers more or less speak their own language and there's lots of references to memes and it's changing all the time. But even there, there have been applications, there are applications now that um, can remove the need for human interaction. Of course, it's not perfect output, but it's good enough uh, for this type of um, communication. Um, and, you know, there's, there's lots and lots of need in that field. So I went a little bit off topic there now, but um, actually I was really surprised when I first looked into um, AI and interpreting. Um, well, actually there's two fields, right? On the one hand, we have machine interpreting, and then you have something like um, computer-assisted interpreting tools, the Kai tools, the famous ones, right? I think this is something that we will see very, very soon and we're already seeing because it, it sounds really handy from what I've seen um, that basically interpreters will still be, you know, the human interpreters, but they will basically be given a hand by their AI assistant with some of the uh, names and numbers and stuff. And I mean, why not, right? That's how I feel about it. And then when it comes to machine interpreting, I didn't have high hopes for that. I went into my research thinking... 
no way, you know, that's not, <laughs> that's not realistic. And then I was really surprised to find that there were some solutions that are actually really good. I mean, they can't hold a candle to human interpreters. I'm not saying that, but it's further ahead than I expected to be for certain use cases. You know, I don't think we need to be afraid, like I said before, that AI will uh, replace human interpreters. But in some instances, I think it's becoming a viable solution as well, which really surprised me as well. Did you see any differences in, in terms of Uh, what language or what languages were involved? Or was this just for English, if you can recall the details? Well, I mean, predominantly I've seen English and German because those are my languages, so I could judge them a bit better. But um, it's, of course, like in most cases, they start out with the bigger, bigger languages that are more in demand because it makes more sense for your own return on investment as well. To focus on those first, thinking that people will need those the most. Um, and at the same time, well, if you have any kind of AI machine, it needs to be trained with certain data. So it's not as common to have a lot of AI for the really rare languages, because there's generally less data there. But one thing I've seen in, in general, in the wider language industry is a trend um, we call um, data for AI services. So a lot of the language service providers in the industry, they've started um, to see a lot of demand for data annotation, data labeling, and all that kind of stuff. So on this a growing demand in that f field, not just for language services though, but in general, you know, for all the internet of things, um, the voice assistants from the really big companies. Yeah, AI is a big topic <laughs> and it's growing to no surprise, I guess. Yeah, there's probably a lot there we can we can get back to and go into more detail. Um, unless anybody wants to jump in uh, right there, um, I'm, I'm gonna hand it over to Alex and I was just wondering whether you use any of those tools um, for preparation or whether you've done any tests like for machine interpreting or speech-to-speech -speech translation as we could also call it, I guess. I think on the day-to-day -day, what we do use in the freelance market is definitely machine translation. Just because if you get a relatively random speech or, you know, like some cards from the, the host or the moderators and they're, really, they're usually not super specific, you just put them into a machine translation real quick, you know, it's kind of the quick and dirty solution, you wouldn't necessarily fully rely on them for interpreting, but it usually is quite handy to have them on hand. Um, when it comes to machine interpreting, I've only been privy to some demos in different scenarios, and they've always been extremely underwhelming, to be quite frank. <laughs> But then also I'm thinking they probably didn't really disclose the super latest and super greatest, like a pack of interpreters. Do you know what I mean? I'm pretty sure like behind closed doors or Sarah, I'm sure you also have some additional insight than just publicly available demos or webinars to the wider interpreting community. Um, but what's out there commercially at the moment, I don't think is very... Um, intimidating <laughs> so yeah but I, i am very curious about the the um assistant systems so that i think is even in interpret bank like they would offer some stuff like that i saw on tech forward i think um and that i'm kind of curious about because that sounds handy enough where i could actually see myself getting into that um so the assistant systems that could be pretty cool but i haven't actually used it i'm i've just learned about that from a friend <laughs> <laughs> so you're talking about um terminology management that kind of thing 
Yeah, but even stuff like um, automatic like name and number recognition, where it mm -hmm. then automatically transcribes that. So stuff like that, which I wouldn't even know where to begin to enable those kinds of features in Interpret Bank, for example. But um, I know from your webinars that they have those types of things. So that is quite interesting. And I think that could definitely also be something where machine learning or AI could find I don't want to say fans in the interpreting community, but possibly like, like a bigger audience in the interpreting community. Um, so I think that's definitely something to to keep an eye out for um, in the in the short to midterm future. I would say. Just one quick thing, because Alex, you just said um, you know we probably don't need to be afraid yet of AI basically taking our jobs, right? Yeah. Right. To me, I understand that that is like a natural reaction that most people are having. But to me, it's not about that. You know, I don't think it, it is a threat. For me, it's not part of the story. Because if anything, there should be different use cases for this. Um, I was talking to Renato actually recently also. And he said when the first machine translation um, was developed many, many, many years ago, that one of his um, colleagues also said, oh, no, you know, our industry is over. I'm going to leave. You know, this is it. We're going to be replaced. And he went and started working for a bank. And like 10 years later, he was replaced by an ATM. And we're still translating, you know. I mean, I know it's not as simple, but technically it's like you're right. The AI solutions, they can't hold the candle to humans yet. Um, but they are very good in the sense that um, like in translation, they have come very far. In interpreting, they're not as far. But even there, they've started to enable communication in some use case. And there's some use cases for that where, like we said before, in those cases, maybe you wouldn't even call an interpreter. It's too expensive. It makes no sense. But at least you have some form of communication, like you said, the, the quick and dirty option or something, you know, where uh, in some cases, it's better to have some communication than no communication, you know. And we always think of the, the big conferences and the prestigious stuff, whatever those like high class things where you want the fancy stuff. But what if, you know, there's so many everyday scenarios as well, sometimes, you know, where, yeah, right now, sometimes there are no interpreters, but if you could at least have something that's still better than nothing, you know, and in those cases, then right. I was surprised to see that some communication this way is already possible. It's, it's not the same, but um, at the same time, you know, it should all be about, um, more access to communication, language access, you know, widening that and more like thinking of it as expanding the market, I think. So I'm seeing some sort of reactions there from both Henry and Graham. So if you <laughs> exactly. want to jump in, I, I want to give say. you the opportunity to. <laughs> I mean, Graham's keeping his poker face for now, but... <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't read his face yet. I don't know, I don't know what's happening in Graham's head. <laughs> Henry is smiling. So. There's a lot of things happening in Graham's head, always. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, you said, you know, it's not a threat. It's not even about that. And I haven't heard the answer as to why it's not a threat. I suspect that most answers to that question actually come back to it's not a threat right now. But nobody's saying it's a threat right now. Alex, a few moments ago, talked about uh, the short to medium term. And I think it all depends on what we mean by the short to medium term. Because as far as I'm concerned, it clearly is a threat. And depending on what you mean by the short to medium term, I think potentially in the short term, it's quite a significant threat. In fact, I don't think it's even sensible to talk about it as a threat. I think it's just inevitable. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? 
the the rationale for for that line of thinking is uh, is based simply upon turning around and looking back over your shoulder as to how quickly things have advanced. <clears throat> uh, when I was an undergraduate student, I remember the linguistics profs in my department were working on very secret, very early models of um, artificial speech generation, mm -hmm. recognition and generation of artificial you know, voices. And they would play games with students by uh, playing recordings that they'd made and inviting us to guess which member of the staff team was speaking. Uh, you know, and then they would actually have mixed a variety of completely artificial voices in with the real ones, and we couldn't tell the difference. So this is, yeah, oh, when was I an undergraduate student? The mid-1980s, mm -hmm. uh, mid to late 1980s. Now, in short to long, short to medium term, quote, unquote, uh, terms, mm. um, that's, uh, what, 35 years ago. That's a generation. Mm -hmm. Now, to my mind, that's the short term. So in another 35 years' time, if we've come from there to where we're at now in 35 years, where on earth are we going to be? Now, you can call that a threat if you want to. I, I don't think it's terribly important to think of it in those terms, mm -hmm. as I say, precisely because I think it's just inevitable. At that speed of development... With the resources that various kinds of organizations and institutions, you know, are now able to throw at this kind of issue mm -hmm. and the value that they can generate for themselves by doing so, it's not a fight worth taking on. Well, I completely agree with what you're saying there. Um, and yeah, the growth, like the... The advancement will be probably exponential, you know, it keeps growing and growing and really, really, really fast. But I'm just thinking of, well, on the one hand, looking at how far, for example, in translation, machine translation has come, you know, it, it has come really far. And in some cases, the, the, the quality is almost on par with humans. And in other cases, it has sometimes been almost better, which sounds crazy. But there have been like some stats I've seen for that as well. And yet there's still human translators, you know? So, and we're saying for interpreting, yeah, maybe in some cases, uh, for some scenarios, maybe there will be some replacement. I look at it more from thinking that we will find more use cases where we can enable communication. So less of thinking of it as only what we know now in terms of our interpreting market, but more what else can there be? There's so much untapped where we would maybe like to have communication, but we can't have it now. Plus, Add on top of that, that not all interpreting is just, you know, business and conference, but there's also the hospital interpreting, for example, or interpreting when it comes to uh, mental health and lots and lots of areas where the interpreter even takes on another role, which I know can be controversial sometimes because interpreters are supposed to be impartial and everything and invisible, but... Careful. <laughs> <laughs> I know, well... I don't care. So <laughs> whatever. We had the troublesome It's fine. Jonathan's, and... Jonathan's not here. We need somebody to be controversial every now yeah. and again. Um, I'm happy to volunteer anytime. But <laughs> I just mean, the interpreter takes on a little bit also, I think that role when, like imagining a scenario where in the hospital, um, it's a life and death situation or not, but you're in a foreign country, you don't speak the language, you know, and then comes in someone who finally speaks your language and can help you, you know? 
and you kind of cling on to that person as well a little bit i imagine you know this happened to me before as well as the as the patient and uh, they almost become your little confidant as well like a machine is not going to be that confidant for you oh, have you have you seen the um the uh, care robots in japan yeah, I know that this kind of stuff also exists, yeah. Um, I'm just saying I don't think it's going to be replaced in all cases. This is a, in a different area. I just looked into the market for American Sign Language Interpreting, um, which is totally taken away from tech, but to illustrate the different scenarios where you use different types of interpreting. And there you have, you know, certified deaf interpreters as well. So who are deaf individuals who are also interpreting and not just between different sign languages, but for example, from American Sign Language to American Sign Language. So... And specifically in cases where people are more under stress, like uh, in really stressful situations in the hospital, mental health or with children, you know, because in those cases you need the extra bit of care as well, the extra bit, the extra level of communication that, you know, in this case, even just a deaf person can offer, you know, because the even the really good ASL interpreter in some cases then is not deemed sufficient enough not that they're not good interpreters but that you want that extra level of understanding from the culture and that level of connection as well and i would imagine that similar scenarios will always apply to spoken language interpreting as well right now, i want to get henry's take on the whole is it a threat is it inevitable and and so on in, in a minute uh, if that's okay but i mean i just when when i listened to graham there i was kind of reminded that the developments that we've seen for remote interpreting which has been sort of dismissed out of hand for years and it's not good enough and it can't replace proper on-site interpreting and then the coronavirus came along and nobody cared whether it was good enough it was just the only available option and i tend to agree also with the you know the thing you mentioned graham about the care robots because sometimes it's it's also not about whether it's good enough or whether it's adequate sometimes it's just a cost issue unfortunately mm -hmm. especially in healthcare but um yeah i'd like to hear from you henry yeah. um, well just yeah because henry's been smiling mischievously <laughs> <laughs> I think he's ready to go. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, you, you guys know me. I mean, this I'm, I'm dynamic all the time. And, 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 and the care model is very interesting because uh, I'm not seeing it as a threat in terms of, well, it depends on what are we talking about, threat to whom and mm -hmm. threat mm -hmm. to what. If we are talking about us who are all established, it's not going to be a threat. But what about the next generation? When you say there is a job, what sort of a job? I mean, okay, sure, not necessarily that everybody going to be staff interpreters or staff translators. I mean, th th what, what sort of a job are we talking about in terms of in remuneration, in terms of satisfaction, in terms of what actually are we contributing? I think that is actually the interesting part that I'm seeing. And because, as you know, I always try to think about what the next generation is going to be because the dynamics of this is fast, as Graham was saying. You don't need to look very far. Just look at how Facebook has completely changed the, the setup, unregulated. And, and the same thing applied as I wrote in the past. The, the, the idea that tech in, in language industry has been in our system infiltrating or affecting and, and, and creating new opportunities and destroying ones as we go, none of that is regulated. Are we seeing the consequences? Has somebody thought about the consequences? Um, a, a clear question. I mean, just look at look at Sarah's example. If you're in a foreign hospital in the future, or, or I mean, it's already happening now. Um, would you be given an iPad? Would you be given an iPad because you're a public patient? Because if you're a private patient, you have an interpreter. 
Is that what's going to happen? I mean, I don't know. If that's the case, well, first of all, is it better? Is it not better? That's one question. Um, what's the role of that? Um, I mean, mental health. Imagine if you're trying to have a schizophrenic who's seeking mental health in a foreign country. I mean, it can't. It is even difficult to be handled by a, by, a, by a mental health specialist interpreter, let alone by a machine. I mean, the doctor, the psychiatrist will be saying, "Hang on, is it the machine giving me gibberish, or is a patient telling me gibberish?" I think that's an excellent example. And and I think that is the really difficult part. I mean, I I, I often talked about the reverse Turing's test. The idea is there is something wrong, right? Whose fault is it? I mean, Turing test is easy. Can a human look at the output and say, "Is it human? Can I work that out?" But now I'm the other way round. We have a breakdown of communication. Look at the breakdown of communication situation. What is the error here? Because now the whole tech system has been decoupled from accountability. In the past, at least, at least you can say, "Oh, hang on." That's the interpreter's fault, or that is the editor's fault, or that's the copywriter's fault, or that is the the printer's fault, or however that might be. This is now totally unaccountable. Yeah, it's the black box, right? Correct. It's a black box. So I think it's it's replacing what and 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 replacing mm -hmm. how and a threat to whom and who's got the right to choose because as and now this is the key because as you know an amateur amateur economist when Alex says it's all about money it's all about budget it is because why did RSI suddenly take off in in that setting yes sure it's because we can't fly it's because of budget it's because of but has actually people been consulted is it going to be the new normal of course it's going to be a new normal because it's cheaper Ultimately, if people actually value about what what because because you know diplomacy happened, not all diplomacy happened by Zoom. How did that work? Because you know special diplomats and envoys are still traveling. It's all about the priorities. <laughs> It is. It's all about the priorities. So replacing what and replacing whom? I think Graham and I have been talking about this for quite a while, and and most of us have. You know, the driverless cars, the the automated driverless cars things. Mm. If you think about the threat, the threat to our profession is not what we're talking about quite often, mm. because we're actually looking at the wrong way. So looking at driverless cars, it's like, well, actually, that's a hype thing because people are hyping and wanting people to invest. And it's, a, it's an investment issue. Um, is it ever going to come? I don't know. But I mean, driverless cars will come when they're only driverless cars. If, if I may just jump in oh. there real quick with the driverless cars, because I think that that's a really interesting point to make because the driverless cars, um, if we go back just like five years or whatever, um, the automotive manufacturers were already saying, oh, by 2021, we'll have fully automated driving, like fully driverless cars. And the thing is, the technology isn't as far advanced as they thought it would be. However, there could be driverless cars at the moment already, but the legislation isn't advanced enough. So mm -hmm. the, the thing that's currently really putting the brakes on it is because the legislators are slowing down the process because they don't know how to regulate this stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, if, let's say in 30 years' time, machine interpreting were to be at a level where it could potentially be used at a larger scale, there could also be some legislation coming into effect here because at the end of the day, I think 
if we're looking in the future, there has to be legislation kind of ruling or governing a lot of the machine to human interfacing that's going to happen. Because there have to be like laws and rules in place because, as you mentioned, it's a black box. So what does a machine do? What if a machine makes a mistake, et cetera, et cetera. So there have to be rules and regulations made for all those things. And so even if the machine interpreting sort of looms large, I think if we kind of look at the um, autonomous driving situation, we see how that gets slowed down as well. Okay, just a few comments on what uh, you, both of you said as well. First of all, I, I like what you said, Henry and Alex, I, I guess as well, with the money coming in, right? Because we always say at NIMSI as well that in the end, it's the market that decides. It's about the end user, it's about the consumer, it's the buyer of language services in the end. You can have the best product ever. If no one's buying it, then it's pointless, you know? <laughs> and you got to kind of bring your language, like adapt your services to the actual needs as well. So like the matching up with what you said, you know, people always said, okay, RSI isn't good enough, but well, now the market decided it is in the sense that people were responding to it and decided it is good enough i want to use this and not the other thing you know and then the second thing with regulations um regulations are actually another really really big driver for the demand and language services that's why um in the united states it's such a big market because there are laws that you know you have the right to receive certain services in your native language. I think it's the same in the UK, whereas in Germany, we don't really have that, you know? And um, so this really decides as well how big or not big language services are, what types of language services you can receive, because then let's say if a hospital has to provide something or if they don't have to, you know, that influences what type of services you get as well. And then we come back to the care robots. Yeah, exactly. And then I'm thinking also drawing a bit of a line again to translation, you know, these days, like I said, ma machine translation is a staple and there's actually more being translated by machines than by humans these days, if you're looking purely at the number of words, right? But there's, of course, post-editing in a lot of cases. Um, but then there's complete sectors where m machine translation is not used because, for example, it's not common to use machine translation in marketing because you need to be a bit more creative and colorful. Uh, it's not common to use it for literature translation for fairly similar reasons, not the exact same ones, but you get the idea. I don't know, maybe uh, in the future of interpreting could also be that it's, or human interpreting, that it's becoming more niche, you know, that uh, only for certain types of cases, you still have a human interpreter. Whereas in other cases, you have other types of language services. Actually, companies I talked to during the pandemic, there were a few who said that they did on-site interpreting before, And they said not all of that demand pivoted to remote for them, but also to like adjacent services like captions for, you know, for virtual meetings or document translation. I don't know, maybe interpreters need to branch out as well. Your job changes as you go, I guess. Translators, a lot of them had to adopt post-editing as well, or I don't know. It certainly will have an effect on the industry. I just don't think that it will ever, ever be completely replaced. No, 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 no. But we're not saying that as as as. Oh, as I'm, I'm was not saying, saying we, you are we agree. saying that either. We agree on that. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I'm just clarifying my own position as all. <laughs> no, no. Actually, given that Graham and, and I are, are in agreement, we can we can finish the the the, the recording now because that's no. you know, <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah, the, that's the, the scope of this is finished. But but, but no, no. But actually, I mean, <laughs> just to say, Henry, I'm not sure I do agree with that actually. But continue. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, okay, okay good, excellent. We've got a reason to to carry on. <laughs> but, but pick up on two things that have just been said, because I think that's very important. Um, one is, 
yes, it is very common for tech. I mean, not that we, not that people quote um, Jack Ma these days because he's now completely out of favor. But I mean, that's what he what they were saying. You know, regulation is, is is the problem of tech, and and you know there are no experts except experts of yesterday. Well, actually, if there are no experts of yesterday, there won't be experts of today. Let's let's face that. I mean, and that's that's the whole idea of 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 tech. Actually, not thinking about where did it come from. I mean, I often said without human translators, machine translation are just are just formula and, and, and algorithm. I mean, that's why low resource uh, languages don't work when it comes to this sort of thing. But anyway, let's put regulation aside because regulation is a totally different idea. You've got a, a leader of of your government. Well, for now, for the for for next little while before she retires, that actually understands science, but most politicians don't. Right. Mm-hmm. And the Congress hearing on tech and surveillance, I mean, it's just laughable. So so how regulation comes in and, and the drivers of regulation is totally different. And it's an even bigger money issue. But put that aside, a simple, relatively linear way of looking at it. Autonomous cars, whether it will happen or not, it's a tech issue. And just look at the investment now suddenly dropped, knowing that this tech is too hard or this tech is actually taking too much money. Flip it the other way, ignoring regulation, planes. Autopilot is on all your planes, but it's not happening because we don't accept it, right? I took one of the first plane, one of the first flight that went from Perth to London, 16 hours, direct flight. And they have four sets of pilots. That's all paid for. Because the plane can do it. We know the plane can do it. Why are we not using that? It's not a regulatory issue. Well, it is a regulatory issue, but, but it's also the idea of how we are going to accept that. I, I want to bring into that because that's why it's important in interpreting, because it's very dynamic. And Jonathan always say that this is the real world stuff. It's because if you are driving and the only way at present, or at least in the foreseeable future, autonomous cars will work. It's because all cars are autonomous. You can't have rebellious drivers, somebody having road rage, and the autonomous cars will just not go, or with um, pedestrians walking out uh, or cats jumping out and all the rest of it. It's not that ethical issue. It's even that the technology issue. Whereas planes are different, right? Planes are all regulated. You know exactly which altitude there is. There's much less of interference and birds and all the rest of it. I mean, simplified. But we actually need to think about the dynamic side of communication. I think that is the key. We are changing the environment. If we are adding tech, we are changing the environment. The environment of language services is already changing. We are are seeing text. We're seeing speeches. We're seeing corporate guff that are actually very easily translatable. That's an excellent point. And I, I want to put a pin in that real quick, because I wanted to throw this to Graham, if I may, um, because Graham, you have quite a bit of experience so being involved in legislative procedures with the BSL Act. And sort of what I would be interested is in, in getting your take in whether regulation or laws can actually do those things that some of us now alluded to, or, or I mean, I mean, how do you see that play out? Because sometimes, uh, you know, for the BSL Act, uh, there was this this legal act, and then it had to be filled with life as it were. Mm. And did you see that happen or did it remain more of a paper tiger, I guess, is the, the, the question in a somewhat, you know, a very short form, I guess. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I could give you a long answer to that question, but much of it is perhaps not really pertinent to our, our, our real topic here. 
um, the short answer to the question is at this stage, then yes, it, it is uh, to a significant extent just a paper tiger at this point in time. Um, because there was an act of the Scottish Parliament in 2015, there was a national plan published in 2017. That first national plan was due for an interim review in 20, uh, 2020. Wait a minute, 2020, yes. And then COVID. So there has been no interim review and much is, you know, the, the whole thing is to some extent in suspended animation at the moment while we, uh, you know, hope to get, get things back on track and so on. So uh, it's not necessarily the best example to take. The more crucial question, I think, is about whether regulation is going to be a knockdown issue here of any kind. And to my mind, there's not the slightest chance that it will be. Uh, because I think that our policy developers and uh, um, ethicists of various kinds and so on have to uh, handle much, much more complex issues than this and have done so on a regular basis. We may not like the outcomes that they come up with all the time. They may still be contested. But we have rules and regulations around all kinds of things. So, for example, you know, a few years ago, I was involved in a campaign to um, protest about uh, the human fertilization and embryology bill in the UK. You know, that's seriously complex ethical stuff. Uh, and people are still disputing whether the right quote unquote outcomes came out of that process and they will do so probably until, you know, long into the future. But there is legislation on that. <clears throat> Decisions have been reached about how we will go forward. Things will be disputed in the courts. We have institutions that deal with that, etc., etc. That will happen in this field too. That kind of reminds me of the whole debate about how some clamor for more regulation of the interpreting profession so that you need to have a, a certain degree to be able to work as an interpreter in the first place, that kind of thing, which could lead to regulation that we've been clamoring for, but we don't like the result in the end, as you just said, if, exactly. if I'm not mistaken. So it, it might not be, you know, what we want in the end. Um, but yeah, but maybe we can get back to the whole question of, of dynamism and it seems to me like it's a little bit similar to what you've been um, saying Sarah is that interpreting could go niche or maybe it could go premium or maybe that's the same thing I don't know mm, so I'm wondering if... nice. yeah yeah but I mean yeah, that's the question because niche and premium is not necessarily the same niche could also mean it's a no, it's a it's a, way it's of a rare language <laughs> yeah and premium it's just about the price um, and who can afford it and that's not necessarily the same thing so true good point actually because I really like the whole the whole aspect uh, the whole question around language access, but I'm wondering whether we are really going to see that, <laughs> or whether it's just you know going to be pushing down prices and rates and um, people making do with with lower quality. I mean, we haven't really gotten into the whole quality issue yet. <laughs> I don't know if we want to, but um, yeah, I, I don't know, Henry, if you wanted to go into more detail on on the what exactly you mean by that dynamism. Um, of, are you talking about sort of the, the messiness of human communication? Or? 
So let's pick up on what Sarah's saying. Sarah's saying that, you know, we need to be more uh, flexible. We need to change. We need to actually look at the future and so on. I totally agree with that because, you know, we, we come from a second oldest profession and, oh, yes, but back in my day, I have to do this. No, no, f- fine. But on the other hand, there's also an, an implication issue. Profession are getting harder and harder to be established and harder and harder to actually say the next 10 years is going to be or the next 50 years or the next lifetime of somebody's earning the income is going to be secure. That is much harder even in, 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 in you know, established services, let alone for us. But the problem for me is that I don't like the term AI because, you know, when I was at university, as, as Graham was saying, when I was at university, those things are called stochastic methods. It's not AI. It's nothing artificial or nothing intelligence about it. It's just stochastic methods of actually solving a problem. But now it's been marketed as an AI. But anyway, be that as it may, any profession needs investment from individuals and from the people using it. Clear and simple. So the question for that is, I mean, looking at people who are actually in my multilingual setting, and, and, and I'm involved in an indigenous world, and, and deaf world is in a different sense because of the, the regulatory pressure and so on. But telling people to say, oh, you're talented, you could be an interpreter, or you could be a translator. Is that happening? No, because they will be going, I will be coding. I would be doing whatever interesting thing it might be. And the interest is not there. And if this is turning into a precarious situation, it is much harder to ask people to invest in the huge amount of time and the resources to be able to get to where we are, let alone better than who we are. And I think that's a problem. The problem for tech, it's a, it's, it's a little bit like, but, you know, not the same. Um, when I was at EST in Aarhus, a conference on translation studies, I said, if we are actually promoting all this idea of an industry that's changing and that is actually getting, you know, automated and so on, there won't be any students in 30 years because nobody will want to study translation. Nobody, there will be no translation studies. So we need to change that idea because the same idea of tech, the more we are automating, either it has to be self-perpetuating, which is very dangerous, but let's not go there. Where's the next generation of experts going to come from? So you're saying we have an image problem or the, the profession kind of feels outdated well, we com- always have compared an image to problem. the shiny tech companies. <laughs> a new image problem. <laughs> well, it's an image problem on various levels because, yes, just by saying, oh, um, Interpreters are not going to die. The profession is not going to die. Translator is not going to die. Sure, but 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 in what form? And is it attractive to the next generation? And is it attractive to mm. actually allow people to actually come into the profession that will actually reinvigorate it in a way that we want to see? Mm. I think that's an excellent point. That is the dynamism that's changing. But the other dynamism is, you know, people laugh about translationese, but actually we are generating texts. I mean, European Union would know that. You know, you're generating texts that are machine translatable. Soon we will be talking machine interpretable. Now, is that what we want? Uh, I'm trying to uh, to think what to. Uh, I'm I'm processing everything uh, that uh, Henry so brilliantly outlined there, and I think you make some excellent points and a lot of uh, good uh, food for thought. I'm kind of I don't know. I, I keep thinking, what about you know in relation to this uh, image problem? I actually agree with you, Henry. That's a good point. You know, like how do you get people then to to study translation and interpreting to become the next experts there as well? Um, well, what if in these courses or what about 
you know, embracing tech more than in those fields. I know, for example, when I did my interpreting degree, we already also started um, interpreting from some videos as well. It wasn't live, but from some videos as well for practice. Or when I did translation as well, there was some working with Tratos or something like that. Um, even though, to be honest, in my uh, translation degree, we had to handwrite everything on paper. I was also thinking, well, that's kind of far <laughs> away from reality, you know? How quaint. <laughs> like, yeah. why not bring it closer to how translators actually work? But okay, doesn't matter. I don't know. And this is just top of my head. But if there's more of a future in it with also presenting it in that way, that it's not, you know, if you do, maybe it's not like pure human translation or pure human interpreting what you're studying, but like a mix of, you know, there's some role that you play as the human. In other cases, there's more the tech side and that you're embracing this to something new. I don't have an answer, obviously. <laughs> I'm totally uh, rambling here, but just wondering with the image problem you said as well, if that's a way to solve instead of resisting and trying to push it away, you know? like mm. uh, Just one very quick comment, because then otherwise it becomes a monologue. I've always talked about the fact that actually what we see throughout history, what is translation and what is interpreting, is only a very narrow scope of intercultural communication and interlingual communication. We all know mm -hmm. that. And, and forgive me if I'm wrong, I mean, the current literature hit is all about re-speaking and trans-speaking and all the dynamic audiovisual translation and so on. That's very exciting. But then the question is, how are you going to train the, the next generation of people who are actually going to be doing that? Because at the moment, the people who are actually doing them are simultaneous interpreters, are translators, are audiovisual translators who are already retraining or, 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 or taking their skills to a new level or to a different platform to be working on tech, to be working on accessibility. But the real question for me, it's not about our market. Our market is gigantic. Yes. <laughs> We're not actually even touching the aspect of our market. So, so to say that it is a threat because the market is a zero-sum game, I don't think so. But the problem is how to actually generate the interest to actually mm -hmm. fulfill our real mission of being communication experts how to train the next generation. The market is changing so quickly and you don't have the teachers uh, for that yet. I think that's a problem anyway, right? Not just in language studies, but uh, in university. Perfect for Graham, I think. Graham to answer that as a pedagogist. Uh, I don't mean any offense. Basically, my family are all teachers, pretty much, with exception of my dad, who's an architect, but like, it's just full of teachers. Um, so no offense to teachers, you know, I just mean how, and it, I'm just saying it's often a little bit behind if you're, of course, first have to study something and then you teach it. And then that time the market has moved on the same time, especially in universities. I know there are people who have worked on the market or are working on the market. And again, my interpreting studies, uh, all of our teachers were active on the market. But I'm saying oftentimes in, in academia and in schools, uh, that is exactly the problem that you're saying, Henry, right? Or you as well, Graham, <laughs> things are developing so, so quickly. It's hard to, you know, catch up and prepare the next generation for what's lying ahead, no? I mean, I've come in there just to say, as the baldest man in the room, <laughs> I feel able to say that um, I fear, unfortunately, that a lot of this conversation sounds to me like bald men fighting over a comb. Okay. Because as I said earlier, I, I still think that I haven't heard any argument that really persuades me that, you know, the shift that we started out thinking about towards uh, machine-delivered interpreting 
uh, is anything but inevitable. And, mm. and I think we, you know, we're talking about, oh, but it'll be complex to regulate. Yes, but not impossible. Yes, but it's a very difficult challenge. Yes, but it's not an impossible one and the machines are getting cleverer. Uh, yes, but the market will grow. Yeah, the market will grow, but it will be satisfied by the cheapest possible solution. And the cheapest possible solution will be an AI-driven solution. If there were a market in machine translation for uh, social media messages, um, that's one of the areas where more and more translation has happened over recent years. We're all routinely using it. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, none of that's been do done by human beings. <coughs> mm -hmm. uh, so it's the machines that are that are lapping up the extra work, and I think that'll only continue. Uh, there will be some niches that will take longer to fill, but the smarter the machines get, the more data gets poured into the hoppers, you know, the faster the answers will get generated, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I, I, yeah, unfortunately, fortunately, unfortunately, um, I think we're guilty really of just not looking quite far enough ahead. Mm. I think if one looks mm. 50 years ahead, let's say for the sake of argument, a couple more generations, to me, you know, youngsters coming into the schools now and opting against uh, studying languages because they think there's not going to be work in translation and interpreting are simply making entirely rational decisions about that. If what they were doing studying languages for were to get employment in those professions, I think there are lots and lots of other good reasons to study language and culture, don't get Absolutely. me wrong. Yep. But for translation and interpreting purposes, I think they're just making a rational decision if they say there's not a long-term career in this for me. And if, if not the current young generation, then I reckon certainly the next, you know, the next one, 20, 30 years time. Um, I think we, we probably really just have to lift our heads up a little bit and say, uh, okay, well, there are plenty of other important things that we could be doing with our ideas and with our languages and with our skills and with our pattern recognition abilities and all the rest of it that's underpinning the kinds of works that we do. How can we deploy those in innovative and, um, you know, dynamic uh, ways to address the colossal problems that our societies face uh, over the coming century. Mm -hmm. This is yeah, not yeah. one of those colossal problems, it seems to me. This is this is one that is on its way yes. towards, uh, you know, us finding very smart tools that will handle this adequately for human purposes. Just a quick follow-up. Do you see any differences there across languages? And most importantly, what about sign language? Same judgment there or...? As Sarah said, where we're talking about um, less widely used languages, smaller communities and so on, you know, the process will be perhaps slower in some respects, um, but the same steps are, are going to be taken. And essentially mm. that applies to sign languages as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so right now there are some pretty clever, um, uh, pretty credible kinds of avatars being uh, produced that can... Uh, you know, looking increasingly natural and increasingly like human signers. They're not there yet, but, uh, you know, as I've said throughout this conversation, I think, you know, when we talk about the yet part, we're just not looking yeah. quite far enough ahead. I think that's the case with uh, with these kinds of avatars as well. Um, and, you know, the resources that are needed for creating and, more importantly, perhaps reading sign language 
uh, in a, in machine driven way are less widely available at the moment. Um, but again, they are being developed. They are evolving faster than we can blink, more or less. Uh, and you know, in the case of uh, visual dealing with visual information. It, uh, digital visual information. Most of this is happening completely out with the language field. Uh, it's happening, for example, through you know CGI for films and so on, um, and all of that will wash back into uh, industries like ours in due course, more or less as an afterthought, because they don't generate as much money as something like blockbuster <laughs> films do. That's a good point, actually. It looks like Alex yeah. is rethinking his life choices there. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Or probably re-evaluating options there. No, 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 not at all. I, I, it's just interesting taking in all the different sides. And I think what Graham was saying as well, it's just, it's just, you know, it's tough looking far enough into the future because at some point we're kind of looking, we're trying to look like around Humans the Humans are bad at that, yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> great, yeah, we're not. Yeah. Um, yeah, on that, actually, I also want to say about the, you know, I'm saying that the market is expanding. Um, and you were saying, Graham, you know, it will be filled with more um, machines. And you're probably right, ultimately. But again, I was more looking at the more immediate future. When I was saying the market is expanding, I mean more that, for example, scenarios where there is no interpreting yet, that some of that will be filled with um, you know, some machine interpreting or some remote, you know, RSI found a whole lot of new section of buyers of interpreting now, you know, that didn't buy interpreting services before. So it didn't take away. Because it's now cheap. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I was talking about in terms of expanding there as well, with um, not only in this case, of course, but it comes with new opportunities as well for the interpreting market is what I'm saying. Yeah. Let me just jump in here real quick, because I remember it was about like a year ago that we talked to Lakshman Ratnam. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was about time. like June or July last year that we talked to him about um, machine interpreting, mm -hmm. and we we had th this. This is kind of always like how the circle goes, right? We had the same conversation <laughs> about RSI year after year after year until the bubble burst, and all of a sudden there was RSI, and so we talked to him about the same thing that it was going to expand sort of language access, and it was kind of like going to open doors because the quality of machine interpreting wasn't going to be properly right at the beginning, but then it kind of raises awareness for language access, which opens doors for us. And I think it's kind of like a similar discussion that we're having right here at the moment. I'm, I'm struggling, Graham, to see where we're going to be. I agree what Sarah is saying. There is going to be more language access across the board. And I agree with what you're saying as well, is that wherever it's feasible and, and cheaper, and obviously it's going to be cheaper wherever it's feasible, uh, we're going to be replaced by interpreting. But I don't see any future unless there's like c3po walking into the door right now where we're actually going to be replaced across the board by machines i just don't see that happening even 50 60 70 years in the future i just don't see that happening and it's been said here tonight that it might mean that interpreting or conference interpreting or whatever type of interpreting we're talking about becomes more niche becomes more sort of like boutique can you say more about why you don't see it happening, Alex? So I was just thinking, um, so I do a lot of motivational interpreting, right? A lot of motivational speaking, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very fast, very slang. And also you have to really bring the motivation, like the emotional beats, you have to bring that into the other language. And even if a machine were able to 
compute all of the input, the output just wouldn't be the same. Because even in like 30, 40, 50 years, a machine is not going to be able to perfectly replicate the emotional impact of a motivational speech from one language to the other. I just don't see that happening unless C3PO comes into the door right now and, you know, he's the ultimate interpreter across all languages. I just don't see that happening. But again, maybe I'm just not looking uh, far ahead enough around the curve into the future. I don't know, Graham, convince me I'm wrong. So uh, if I understand your example, you're saying the motivational impact of a speech, for example. For example. The machine interpreted, I have a dream speech, for instance. <laughs> yes, if we will. Yeah, yeah. sure. Honestly, I, I don't see what, what, what is, um, I think it's just the decline isn't it uh you know from from the simplest two word utterances of a, a tiny child to um martin luther king and it's it's just a question of whether we have enough uh data and enough capability sensitivity uh in our in our machine processes our machine driven processes to handle more and more complex material and as i said earlier i think you know the evidence if you look back over your shoulder is precisely that uh you know human abilities have demonstrated that in tandem with uh digital uh processes one way or another they have um found their way to handle more and more and more and more complex material and they will continue to do so so i think you know the same kinds of underlying processes that now enable machine translation to produce a very credible um i have a dream speech in writing uh, i see absolutely no reason why they can't do exactly the same uh with the spoken word so in terms of emphasis and pathos if you will um yeah, I, I would probably agree in, in that 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 might be uh, an option. Sure, why not? Yeah, I, and I agree with Graham. Being the Cassandra in the room often because I, I predict dystopic futures. That's terrible. People go, "Oh my god!" But nobody listens. I mean, just look at all the fake videos that's been coming out. I mean, this is only at the beginning, and it's already affecting how people behave. So this is rudimentary. It's, it's not very hard to manipulate people's emotions. That's one thing. Using machine to manipulate emotions is not difficult. Using machine to generate impact, to generate empathy, well, empathy might be harder, but impact, certainly. Or, disinformation. Or, or disinformation. I mean, that's all happening already. And that's all happening translingually or, or through different language medium. It's already happening. The dystopic part is this. At the moment, we have the, the tier level. We have the very high level interpreting that we can hear, that we can actually go, this is really different, and this is something that machine cannot imitate yet. There is actually a mathematical point of inflection that will come through eventually, as what Graham is saying. It's not necessarily linear, I agree, because look at what happened in the past. People were saying that ELF, you know, English as lingua franca, will actually take over the world. Well, it actually hasn't, but, you know, that's, that's an aside. Not yet, maybe. <laughs> but it's not necessarily linear. But as we go up that scale, we will also have a downscale of expectation. Because the downscale of expectation is this. Unfortunately, one day, all of the experts will die and there will be a new generation of experts that may or may not be as good as. And eventually, we will actually approach the asymptote where the machine and the human actually intersect 
And that's the disturbing side. It's, uh, I was just um, thinking about uh, Ray Kurzweil, you know, these predictions about uh, 2045 is the date he gives. For the you know, singularity? For, for the singularity, for, uh, you know, human knowledge and machine knowledge attaining such a pitch that, boom, all sorts of things become possible. 2045, that's 24 years. Not very far away. Absolutely around the corner. Now, I'm not saying every word that comes out of Ray Kurzweil's (laughs) mouth is uh, is bound to be true. Um, But he's a smart guy. He's got a handle on a whole lot of knowledge that the rest of us, you know, can only dream of having access to kind of thing. And I I think Henry makes an important point there about about these two kind of intersecting, uh, these two kind of intersecting directions, as it were. Because the other part of all of this, I think, and it does come back to, something that we've sort of acknowledged as a as an elephant that we don't necessarily want to uh, pet within this room um <laughs> about quality because i think it is it's already surely tr- true for us all that we are more tolerant of less high quality translations than we would have been a few years ago we see them all the time we live with them we don't stress about them uh, you know, kids text messages to each other. They spell everything wrong. They can't be bothered with the capital <laughs> letters. They don't care. They, just communication kids. still seems to be happening, you know. They still yeah. manage to form human relationships and all the rest of it. Academics uh, who, uh, you know, a, a, a number of them, an increasing number of them, linguists who are saying, okay, I'm going to live with the uh, variation that we all see around us in academic writing and so on, and I'm not going to correct my students' English in this, that, and the other respect because we're just all more tolerant of this kind of variation now. So I think that's one part of the intersection uh, that Henry's talking about. We are well on the way already to learning to live with different kinds of expectations around, around language and communication in that respect too. Yeah, we're getting dangerously close to the to the precipice of doom and gloom. It feels like, but, um, <laughs> but and, uh, I mean, it was interesting that uh, Henry mentioned the 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 what was it the the inverted Turing test or the reverse Turing test? We could yes, talk about the, the, blind the inverse Turing test. Yeah, inverse Turing test. We could talk about blind faith and machine translation. You know, the story of police officers knocking down a door because they they were working with wrong assumptions due to false machine translation. Uh, so I'm not sure we we want to take you know, further steps towards the precipice. Um, so, so maybe we can sort of circle back to, um, to what Sarah was getting at earlier and, and talk about what's, you know, what's maybe the better alternative. I mean, what, what are ways and means to put our skills to good use, as you said, Graham, um, if in fact machine translation or the singularity is inevitable? Just to sort of contest the way you framed that very slightly, you know, it, I don't. I don't think it is necessarily to see it as a precipice. You know, it. it, it you could say it's just. A, it, it's just a very um, sane refocusing of our attention on the mm-hmm. things that really are going to matter. You know, mm-hmm. in the years ahead. And if this is not going to be one of them, why would we focus lots and lots of our attention and anxiety and concern on it? You know, and brain power. Yeah, that's an excellent point because again, it's not interpreting for interpreting's sake or translating for translation's yeah. sake, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, just um, for 
people who have these skills, and like you said, there's lots of transferable skills that you gain as a translator and an interpreter that you can use in other fields. And lots of us have other interests as well. Um, so, you know, you can go into other directions. Um, but yeah, I know, Graham, like I said, I'm putting you on the spot, but off the top of your head, what are some of the other, you know, more important things we could be focusing our attention on with those skills, for example, if you know any? I mean, we've touched in passing on... Um Uh, things like the growth of, of disinformation. And I think allied to that seems to me in the wider society is, is a level of um, uh, intolerance in many respects that people are, are encountering in many of their human-to-human -human interactions. And for me, um, you know, uh, learning about other languages, learning about other communities, learning about other cultures is, uh, is the way par excellence of learning tolerance. And I think that is going to be uh, a human skill uh, that, we, th that we clearly are going to need to work on um, in the society that is now emerging ahead of us. You know, languaging and uh, and understanding language processes uh, as a way of building human relationships uh, seems to me to be absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. So I think if we are able to reframe some of uh, some of the kinds of things that we do towards those kinds of exercises of um, you know intercultural uh, encounter uh, and intercommunity encounter, whether that's within one and the same language or across languages, you know, and in essence, if the machines are doing the translation for you, in other words, if you've got a Babel fish in your ear, then we might as well be speaking the same language anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like what you're saying there. It actually reminds me of, uh, I seen a brief clip a while back from, a, I forgot his name, unfortunately, but a well-known, successful business guy. I'm just going to say, I really cannot recall the name. I can probably find the video later and put it in the notes somewhere. But um, I remember he was talking also about how, you know, we shouldn't try to compete with the machines because the machines will ultimately win. <laughs> but that instead we should focus on what makes us human what we right. humans bring to the table, like you said. And then, for example, in schools, people should maybe also focus on teaching children uh, empathy and the, the power of empathy. And like you said, maybe, you know, focusing on, on tolerance and overcoming those wider issues, exactly like you said, the, the bigger human issues that we're facing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think empathy is a key word. Thank you. And that's very hard to put a value on. And that's very hard to, to convince people to be actually uh, uh, investing in. Just picking up on that idea, um, not to take us to the precipice, but to, to, to remind or, or, or at least highlight the fact that there is a double-edged sword. There's always a double-edged sword. Technology is a double-edged sword, just like language is a double-edged sword. There is a flip side. You know, the idea, uh, um, the interesting discussion about premium and, and niche um, was, was interesting because, you know, uh, uh, Sarah talked about marketing. Um, the idea of marketing not being uh, uh, used in, in machine translation. Well, yes and no. It's only a conceptual issue. Because actually, a lot of disinformation is generated by machine translation. Well, actually, a lot of disinformation is, is generated by humans. Let's not forget that there are many countries in the world that train translators to provide disinformation. But that's something that we in the European society don't think about. I was talking to John Jameson not too long ago. We've lost the ability 
to think about the fact that information was a weapon. Yeah. That language was a weapon. We, we've lost it. In the Cold War, we were. We were thinking exactly the same thing as the other side. But now we, we, we have 50 years, 60 years, 70 years of peace. We've completely forgotten about it. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, I was just going to say that uh, in Europe, it's not like maybe we don't think about it anymore, even though I feel like it's coming back a little bit with all the movements we're seeing uh, also in Europe. Um, but yeah, of course, if you think in World War II, then followed by uh, the Cold War and everything there, like you said, language was a, a major weapon and there was lots of this uh, information so it's, i think i said this before as well that yeah there's some ways where machi machines are being used for disinformation but humans have been used for that for way longer <laughs> so <laughs> you know that's that and um circling back to the whole thing with empathy as well i think that these kind of soft skills yeah they have been underestimated for a really 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 long time it's still seen as like a, yeah that's nice whatever you know but what are the the harder skills that you can bring to the table whereas really it's the soft skills that yeah where we as humans can excel you know and that should be brought to the forefront more but i guess the question is do, do soft skills pay the rent i mean well, maybe a lot the of us will, one of if you the machines take over the yeah. other jobs you know <laughs> i think we just have a hard time imagining what that looks like but yeah go ahead graham if you go back to henry's point about uh, about language as a weapon um I, i find that hard to square with the notion that this is a soft skill <laughs> good point it's, yeah it's a very <laughs> powerful true. skill you know <laughs> yes. yeah. extremely is. powerful skill and my children are now 26 and 22 Uh, my wife is an interpreter uh, uh, as well. And, um, you know, we always said through those children's schooling, the number one skill, the number one capability that we wish their education would focus on would be um, critical discourse analysis. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and so, again, in terms of, you know, skills that are of real value in the long term mm -hmm. to the human race, I think critical discourse analysis would be pretty high up my list. Yeah, I could not agree more. <laughs> yeah, and it's exactly to counter language as a weapon, to counter disinformation, yeah, uh, and, to, and, to, and to think straight using language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes to everything you said there, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and they're transferable. It's totally transferable skill, which is what Graham's point, and I, and I totally agree. It's, it's that we need to be able to make what we do sexy but the sexy part is that actually all we do is very transferable whether it is in journalism whether it is in translation whether it is in diplomacy whether it's in any human encounter of course we do because otherwise we don't we we cannot attract the new generation the new experts yes income matters but we'd also need to say but but how does income matter depends on how we value the society it's all about how we put put value on who's being remunerated how are people getting how is society being remunerated but that that's too philosophical maybe but that's really the big question yeah exactly yes i'm not sure that we need to make it sexy though henry do we we just need to get people to recognize that it is as important as breathing for pete's sake if empathy and thinking straight are not as important as breathing i don't know what, what, what why we would do them and i would go back you know comment sarah made earlier she talked about um Uh, when she was studying translation, they were made to handwrite everything. Mm. Was handwriting sexy for us when we were at school? <laughs> no. It was just something that you absolutely had to do. 
Yes, I went through penmanship. I mean, you know, I had to learn how to write and, and, and having, having had a colonial education, you know, penmanship yeah. and, 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 and articulation. That was the thing that we had to do. The reason why I talk about sexiness, or, or maybe it's a wrong term, <laughs> is, is this. Um, at the moment, and, and, and you know, I worked, I'm trying to work on, on, on the issue of indigenous languages and the rarer languages. Hmm. Sign language is a little bit different in the sense of this, the accessibility side is different. But, but if you think about how do we revive dialects, how do we revive languages that are, that are not popular? A, a huge part of it is because employment opportunities. A second part of it is stigmatism. I mean, classic example, because I'm talking through three people in the German-speaking world, the classic example between <laughs> the North and South. You know, I go to Zurich and people speak to me in Switzerdeutsch. They're proud to speak to me in Switzerdeutsch. And, and they, they go, this is my language. I don't care what you think. Why? Because they're rich? Sure. But, but it's also because, they, 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 it's, it's also because they, they are really proud of that. Their children are really proud of that. Everyone's really proud of that. And then I go north. You know, friends of mine who are up north, they go, oh, we don't speak dialect. That's, you know, that, that, that's a terrible thing. In order for this to work, in order for language to work, in, same thing as in order for humanities to work, in order for all the, all the soft skills, as whatever we want to call it, to be, to be attractive, we want to make it attractive. We want to highlight the attractiveness. I think uh, that's why I call it sexy. That's, that's why I call it sexy. It's probably the wrong term. But if we make it compulsory, all we do is antagonize. Because that's what happened, you know, like, like, like handwriting. If we make something compulsory, most, most children will go, why do I have to learn that? I don't want to do that. Well, like you said, in the, you can make it attractive even if it's on the curriculum, right? I mean, <laughs> sure. Of, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, but, but not necessarily, not, not necessarily compulsion. <laughs> You know, I'm not an Irish uh, speaker, but I lived in Ireland for a long time. And I know the language was, you know, pretty much almost dead. And now it's kind of coming back. And for a very long time, there was a stigma associated with speaking Irish, that it's the language of the, the poor and that's lower class. And now it's coming back and people take more pride in speaking Irish as well. So there is a little bit of that, you know, image around it as well and attractiveness. It's definitely of sexy. Yeah. When it comes to dialects, so I think we kind of tend to say that in Germany, we're no longer, you know, patriots, but we're regional patriots. I don't associate with the whole uh, being German thing. But I love the area that I'm from. And I love our dialect. And I love coming home and speaking my dirty <laughs> dialect. And I will defend Your it to dirty anyone. Dialect. You know? Yeah, because our dialect here is known as being very trashy. But I love it. And I'm very proud of it and everything it represents. So <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's re really, really funny to see that as the um, conversation progresses we sort of keep poking at bigger and bigger topics but uh, <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> maybe this is a good opportunity to um, wrap up for today and, and maybe say that we continue another time um, if, in if you pub. agree uh, in a pub ideally yeah and, live uh, maybe live with a few a, more people with audience yeah, Ooh, yeah. <laughs> exactly the live yeah. pub show I love it with with a very interactive audience yeah I, I've really taken away uh, a lot from this conversation and liked what, what Graham for example said earlier with with um you know, put, putting these things to good to good use, and maybe not looking at whether they're marketable first, but whether they're you know of benefit to 
well, humanity, I guess, uh, made me think of, of things like the universal basic income. But again, poking at yet another big that is a uh, topic this we is, could yeah. get oh into, gosh. but probably won't get into. <laughs> we'll so <laughs> I, I guess for tonight, thank you so much, um, Graham and Henry, for coming on and, and talking to us about all these topics. We've kind of moved away from technology along the way. But, but it's I been think illumin- it's been a it's worthwhile been discussion. Journey. Telling yeah. in itself, For we've sure. refocused on the human side and what we bring to the table. Exactly, and I'd be, I'd be very interested. Tool. It's how to use it. Yeah. it's the same thing as all the all the, all we're talking about. The theme today is actually it's how to use the tools, really, mm-hmm. or how to how to equip the user. Or anyway. Actually, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and cut that, just out to say that uh, cut that out. I'm, the, I'm also very, in, very interested in, in, in hearing from our listeners uh, and feel free to, you know, write in or, or send us voice messages um, and just give us your take uh, on, on the whole topic of the future of the profession, I guess, to sound a bit grandiose. But once, once again, just in a short post. Exactly. Very quick. Um, Thanks for joining us. It's been a wonderful discussion. And uh, again, I really hope we can continue it at some point uh, live. Yes, Uh, thank you so much. But for now, we'll sign off and say thank you for listening. Mm